This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. Well, we just passed daylight savings time, and it means that we're coming into spring. We're coming out of winter. We uh, we did it. So this also means it's coming into conference season. Uh, recently, Whole Whale put together a list of 65-plus great nonprofit conferences, posted it up for free on our site, and we've been getting tremendous response about it. And it made me realize that you know there's so much that goes into uh, the conference world. And it's actually had a huge impact on my own career uh, early on. I learned so much about the sector. I made so many great connections by uh, going to just every nonprofit conference I possibly could. And I thought it was actually very fitting to talk to one of the people I consider an absolute expert in this space, uh, the co-founder of Social Media for Nonprofits, which runs a series of really great on-the-ground conferences across the country. Uh, her name is Ritu Sharma, and she knows her stuff. Uh, I really got to tell you, so I took full advantage of it, and we talk about how she just measures the internal efficacy of a conference and about their organization. I grew to, like, how do you run an effective conference? And then, you know, how do you do as much speaking as she does at different conferences, and what are the tactics you use? And then how do you attend a conference in a way that really drives toward an outcome uh, and drives value? And you may be surprised at her sort of lens and approach. I mean, she's going to, you know, upwards of 20 conferences um, a a year. So she really has wonderful insight uh, that I think you'll you'll get something out of. Uh, So let's jump into that interview. Sharma, the co-founder of Social Media for Nonprofits. Ritu, how's it going? It's going quite well, George. Thank you for inviting me and excited to share some thoughts and insights and uh, lessons learned the hard way with your community. I love immediately jumping into it. I've learned this the hard way, so you know it's good information. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so help us out here. What is uh, Social Media for Nonprofits? What What do you guys do? Social social media for nonprofits. When we started uh, five years ago, we were providing a handful of conferences in about seven cities, but it's evolved to be a community of digital marketing and communications practitioners, where we do a number of conferences, and we do a number of webinars, tweet chats, a whole spectrum of programs to help nonprofit professionals, especially in communications, digital marketing, social media marketing, and utilizing the digital tools available to you for uh, leveraging those for raising the awareness of your cause, uh, raising more funds, um, doing advocacy-related work. Um, so that's what we do. Amazing. And so what is the sort of big audacious goal uh, for your organization? You know, why, why do you push it forward with this approach? We find that uh, and my strong belief uh, when we started this work and, and stayed uh, steady throughout that is that nonprofits are very under-resourced 
as a majority. Um, they're very under-resourced. There are very few resources. And the work that we do in, in educating nonprofits and using these technologies for meeting their mission better is broadly considered actually overhead. So nobody wants to fund this work. Um, nobody wants to provide a grant for you know learning how to use these technologies well. So it's a lot of le- learning and a lot of figuring things out. Um, and there's not much of a structured approach to learning in this particular field. But this field offers the greatest opportunity there is for nonprofits to get out there and recruit more donors, recruit more supporters, and to really connect with the community as to what they do, why they do it, and how they make this world a better place, and give a role to people to be part of the change they want to see in the world and be that change. So this is very needed. It's very powerful. It levels the playing field in such a significant way. At the same time, this is the, one of the most under-resourced and under-supported things. That's what drives the work that we do, and that's what drives what I do at, at where I am at social media for nonprofits. So in your words, just to put you on the spot here, what is the rationale for a nonprofit that is obviously you know, under-resourced to invest in social media? I know you probably have had this conversation for the past decade, but it seems to evolve and become well, more complex, yeah. right? <laughs> Sure. And to correct you, I've had this conversation for roughly about half a decade, um, five years only. But I think it's important. Um, This is uh, an area. So if you look at it, to give you a simple visual here, if you look at it, uh, you know, 10 some years ago, if you wanted to get your message in front of hundreds and thousands of people, um, your choices were newspaper radio program or TV, each of those areas, but the the way you could get in front of thousands of people who could potentially care about your cause, the barrier to entry was extremely high. And also, if you didn't get it right the first time, there was no way for you to get a feedback and course correct quickly without investing roughly about the same amount of money. What social technologies, whether it's LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, whatever keeps coming up, what all of these technologies do is give you an opportunity if you're creative and if you have some resources, at at the very least some staff resources, to stand out just as as much as any of these major brands that before you could only do so using a lot of money. And a couple quick examples for you just to put this in perspective, not to say every nonprofit can do this, but just to give you a a perspective is, uh, you know, look at in terms of fundraising and millennials is Ice Bucket Challenge. What happened a year or two ago and it was largely, largely fueled by, by social media usage. It was largely, um, you know, the kind of media spend and media views that that campaign got was fueled by social. They did not spend a single dollar in creating, curating, or getting their message out, number one. Number two, more contemporary, more recent, if you look at the rise of Black, Black Lives Matter, that's actually a um, an advocacy campaign for advocating for, uh, for African-American people in this country. That's also an, an incredible example. The atrocities in that demographic are not new. Um, they were far harsher and far worse, you know, in 60s and, and 40s and 50s in this country. But their rise has been really fueled by the ability of people in Ferguson, in LA, in all of these places to connect with each other each time something takes place. And everybody with a mobile is a reporter. So th- there's, this is your sort of the proof 
proof as to what is possible. Um, not to say that everybody can do it, but at least you have a shot at the that opportunity to get your message to a greater number of audience without as significant of a barrier to entry as traditional media used to have. Yeah, I hear you on that, and I love those sort of case studies, but let's be honest. We all know that this is like a power law dynamic playing out where the long tail of nonprofits are are starting off with a cold start. They got like 100 people on Facebook. They have, you know, 75 on Twitter. And so my question to you is, you know, what is the sort of expected amount of effort needed to get one to a critical mass? And then even if you have that mass, just to play back to the ice bucket challenge, the next year after, how much was ALS able to capitalize on getting donations from that list? You know, how do you curate uh, and cultivate after you've grown the list? So I would say I would really be the first person to say, as I said earlier, it's not that everybody can do that. um, And at that level, they can do that. It's just to say that's possible. What I would say in terms of a small to average like startup nonprofit, the opportunity is in, um, in connecting with your donors directly far better than you've had in the past. And it's not just your donors, but also your supporters. Uh, what it takes to do that steadily and to build it, you know, at the very minimum, my recommendation for a, a small nonprofit is eight to 10 hours a week. It's hard to do a good enough job under that. Um, as you get savvy and as you get um, more, uh, more refined in terms of figuring out that 20% of the stuff that leads to 80% of reward, uh, you start to do a little bit more. So first and foremost, it's not free. It's not something that's going to take place. And just being on the social is not going to lead to that. It's strategic social, number one. Two is, um, yes, those are really sort of moonshot ideas. Um, and it wasn't specifically in case or in the case of uh, Ice Bucket Challenge, they did not create it. They just supported that. They just had the culture that allowed for something like that to happen. And they, to their credit, what the biggest thing that stands out for me in their campaign is not what other people did, but what they did in not trying to stifle it, control it, and, and really restrain it, they allowed for that to happen. Uh, and, that, and, and I've spoken to their leadership quite a bit in details about that. So I think what I would say, the lesson learned from either of those is to to be, number one, first and foremost, authentic, to be genuine, and to find something that's not so much about the output, but the impact and the outcome of your work. That's the most moving thing you can do on social, is figuring out how do you make this world a better place and focusing on that communication versus talking about, in our case, let me just give you an example, instead of talking about how we do 15 conferences in 15 cities in four countries, or we serve 2,000 nonprofits, or we have, you know, 500 speakers a year. Those are all, you know, really not inspirational or meaningful metrics. So, you know, you're a measurement guy. You're the perfect person to talk about how those the way traditionally nonprofit sector measures its efforts is useless. It's not inspiring. It's all about, you know, justifying resources. It's not about the change that they create. And I think that's the biggest change that needs to happen across the board, but especially so when you're utilizing social media marketing, because you're really getting in front of um, your audiences and your your community and giving them why you should. It's It's such a hard thing and not a head thing, really. Yeah, and especially when you're creating the narrative and, and pulling the stories from the data, of course, you have to find the, the story of the one that represents the many. But 
getting back to the narrative of social media for nonprofits, you guys put on um, a number of conferences. And so what does a successful conference look like in terms of the, the qualitative and quantitative uh, data that may come out of it? Sure. Um, I will start by saying that we're a small nonprofit. We're about two, two and a half people at any given period. So we don't have a lot of resources to design impact measurement well. And we didn't do that early on. We evolved into that as we got better. When we started, we measured things like how many people attended, how many people attended on scholarship, how many people um, uh, you know, rated us as useful. So very elementary, because that's sometimes kind of all you know when you're starting out. But as you grow and evolve, as a nonprofit, especially as you surround yourself um, with folks that are doing this well, you learn, you know, so how did that make this world a better place? How did you meet your mission? How are you enabling more funds raised? So it's, it's a lot about, in my opinion, designing programs at the onset um, as to what the big outcome is going to be. In our case, which we did not do in the beginning, but we should have, um, would have been to look at things like um, after attending our training programs, any variety of them, um, did people raise more money? Did they launch a fundraising or an advocacy campaign? Um, so tying really to the final outcome of our our you know key constituents as the nonprofits, did we help people raise more money? Did we help people do what they do better? And designing actual outcome that way. But quite frankly, I'll, I'll be just frank with you, um, we didn't design really thoughtful metrics. We designed outputs and very, ten, very, very transactional metrics that didn't connect to our overall mission. Yeah. I mean, thank you for being honest there. And I think if all of us could jump in the time machine going back to the beginning, look, we would, we would design things a, a lot more differently, but it seems where you're moving toward is, you know, you're trying to design so that at least you have predictive outputs. Look, if we combined the right number of people with great content and the opportunity to network, the opportunity to learn, we're going to have better, higher probabilities of outcomes that lead to better social engagement that raise uh, raise funds for the organization, help them spread awareness. Uh, and that it seems to be where you're driving, right? Absolutely. But also, like what I would stress is understanding who you're serving and who your audience is, is incredibly important. So if you are a nonprofit that's direct service, your your impact is easier to measure because you could take direct full credit for how many blankets you distributed, how many people you sheltered, how many meals you fed, and how many people you removed from uh, you know, poverty in general. But when you're a network and infrastructure nonprofit like us and a capacity building player, it's hard to take credit for um, the work that you do. So we cannot take credit for, hey, XYZ attended our conference, and from one year, it is raising from 100K to 250K next year. Um, that's a stretch connection to make as an infrastructure nonprofit. And no matter which way you slice, it's a very hard one to take credit for because you can't design for something like that. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, and it's it, it sometimes can be a moving target uh, as well as you evolve your business model, you know, as you move to, you know, maybe more of a webinar model, maybe more of a uh, e-learning platform, you want to make sure that it can evolve and not just, you know, rigidly tie you into something. Absolutely. One other thing I would say is also like 
don't beat your, I mean, everybody from, and their mothers are telling you to, you know, measure impact and be this measured nonprofit and, and whatnot. Let me also kind of put you at ease by saying, sometimes, you know, what you do is limited. So for example, our first program that we launched was a conference. How much can you really transform another nonprofit in a conference? But very little bit. You are attending, you know, eight sessions, half hour each. We cannot change your philosophy or your theory of change in that. However, we have a new program that we're incubating. In that program, we're actually bringing people in the funnel through our conferences and exposing them to wide variety of content. But then those of those people who decide to go deeper are partnering with us to do a consulting model where we are recruiting our speakers and consultants who are part of our organization and our community to pair them with people who need um, consulting services. So they're creating good verticals. They're creating the baseline strategy. They're creating what it takes to create a good fundraising campaign. Now, from spectrum of engagement to exposing them to, you know, different types of content to actually working hands-on with them, creating great infrastructure that they can maintain on an ongoing basis. Now you're talking about substantive work with them. So there is substantive outcome attached to that work. So I just want you to also realize that if your work is a tangential touch point or a small touch point, your outcome is going to be small as well. So don't be looking to change people's lives by just a small touch point. Be realistic, you know, and, and there's room for both big transformative changes and there's room for people who move the conversation for, forward incrementally. Yeah, absolutely. Are you going a mile wide or a mile deep? And how does that align with, uh, you know, why you have started the company to begin with? Yes. So you have particular expertise that I want to make sure I tap into here. Uh, you've put on a lot of conferences. Um, do you actually know the total number of conferences that you have, you have put, put on? Approximately 74, 75 in the last five years. Okay. So something tells me that the more you do this, the better you get. What is some advice you'd give uh, maybe to the, the Ritu that was just getting into it, creating her conference for the first time? Uh, what is some of the like hard-earned tips and tricks to putting on a good conference for those of us out there planning our own either small or larger gatherings? Well, uh, I will say, especially if it's a small or medium-sized gathering and not a large one, is to partner with nonprofit venues and schools and, and colleges. Those provide you excellent technology support, excellent space, much larger than than you know many of the other venues, and they provide you at a very discounted price. So that helps you keep your costs down. So that's one. Two is use extensive amount of social media very strategically because it allows you to create a bigger community, bigger uh, digital community, and also get your content in front of lots of people who are not there, but they should be for the next time. So it, it really, uh, don't think of your conference or your effort within that room only. Uh, we have a, every conference we go to still um, has a very large following. People mark their calendars and they attend the entire conference digitally through Twitter. And uh, we do a lot of live tweeting, live blogging. Um, so to, to think about your audience both inside the room and outside the room. Yeah, I love that. Uh, practically, how do you, this seems like a very basic question, but how do you make sure people show up? It's so hard to get people from like behind a screen to like meet in the seats. How do you, how do, you do that? Well, we luckily we're 
we've that's a gift we've uh, we've really honed in on in most of our conferences we have really good attendance we touch about 2000 people a year um, in distributed conferences so i think the question is you know thinking about value what can you offer them that they're not getting otherwise and the number one value that an in person conference can offer versus an online number one is opportunity to network and meet with decision makers and influencers to actually meet and get in front of them and and get out and and connect with people so that's number one because that you cannot really it's not the same on digital channels number two is um designing the program in a way that allows them to get hands-on and get some stuff done versus just listen to more interesting topics and ideas. Sort of the bringing the ecosystem together of amazing people that are solving a common challenge, connecting and, and creating room for serendipity also I think is very important. Yeah, that's interesting, not being too rigid there. And then with regard to... Um, let's say sponsorships, obviously like a lot of that uh, has to be a part of the game. And sometimes, you know, not you guys, but I see in other conferences that the tail kind of wags the dog, meaning that like when a company that maybe rhymes with the word back mod comes in and says, we want to have all of your keynote presenters be our people. How do you deal with that while also making sure that you can find sponsors? Well, you know, that's a challenge that everybody in the nonprofit sector has, and we're not immune to it. And that's not the only corporation that's pretty dominant in this space. Everybody. And there are smaller and more aggressive players that are even more disrespectful of small and medium-sized nonprofits or any nonprofit educational platform. I think they get the biggest bad name, but they're actually, in my experience, aren't the worst to work with. Um, what I find, quite frankly, I, this is one of my biggest reasons if I were to leave this space is this reason is my my difficulty working with the power dynamic in the sponsorship field in the nonprofit. So I don't care which conference you go to. Uh, you're welcome to test it for yourselves. What happens is... Um, one of the biggest things a sponsor in the nonprofit marketing space asks for is, hey, give me a speaking spot and maybe we'll consider sp sponsoring. And when we do that, we promise you we will not use it as a self-promotional um, tool or a platform. Uh, at the end of the day, many of them don't, some intentionally, but many times even unintentionally, their definition of what's self-promotional and that is different than what a nonprofit is. So this is the biggest tussle for anyone working with sponsors is how to, you know, to get the money so we can do this work and support the nonprofit sector, but also do it in a way that you're not hosting a, you know, a sponsorship briefing, basically. Um, so everybody has this trouble. We've had it. We try to maintain and manage it very carefully. We've, you know, we've, when we've given feedback sometimes, we've, you know, lost a lot of money because they've yanked, you know, many people have yanked sponsorships. I think as a sector, we need to figure this thing out because otherwise we're, um, we're weakening the sector. But I don't think I have the answer for, for this one is to, how yeah. to handle this, you know, quite, <laughs> quite frankly, I don't have the answer, but I, but I have dealt with this problem. I see it everywhere I go and um, it's, it's pervasive. Yeah, I think we all do. And, you know, speaking, you know, I, I don't mean to point to any sponsors negative. They're, they're, they're there supporting and then they say, you know, we deserve a spot on there. So it totally makes sense. And 
Whole Whale has found ourselves in that situation as well, saying like, look, if we're if we're going to be a sponsor, be a part of it, can we have a speaking part? It's just like it's just it's almost this like natural energy that goes both ways. But I think maintaining the quality of programming is at uh, is at the heart of it. And it's like, are we providing value um, for the people that show up? Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me switch now. Uh, since you've put on so many conferences, it also means you've attended so many conferences. I'm actually curious, how many conferences do you go to in general a year? You know, I go to about the same number that I attend. Uh, I'm planning to do a lot more, so I expect to go to a lot more conferences this coming year. But I, on an average, I travel three to four times, about two to three times a month. I speak at a number of conferences. I attend a lot. Um, I don't have a, a good, I, I haven't ca- calculated a good number, so I actually can't say how many I've attended. But I, I do quite a bit. Wow, that sounds like an insane amount. I mean, you're on pace for like 24. Um, so uh, my question to you is, uh, let me get some of your tips for people that, first off, like we have a list of over 65 different conferences that are in the nonprofit sector regarding like technology and impact. And how do you choose which conference to go to as a small nonprofit? What are the factors that, that play in for you? Well, I will tell you this. That's my favorite part of the conversation you know, which conferences to go to and how to make the best of it. Um, Number one is, you know, decide by who you want to meet and who you want to network with. Um, If you are looking to meet with sponsors, look at who has the right roster and go there and use this as an opportunity to rise. If you are looking to be a thought leader and promote a speaking career or or promote an opportunity for your nonprofit or its employees to have a strong thought leadership, you look at who do you want to be speaking next to and people who have great content and great visibility and great platform even after. So it really depends on what you're after. Sponsorship is as a small nonprofit. Oftentimes you're looking for how can I also get sponsors. If you're a training nonprofit, you're also looking for how can I find great speakers. So pay attention to who's um, featuring some bold and um, breakthrough speakers and not just the same. And then if you are um, an individual at a nonprofit or unaffiliated and you're looking to really build a brand for yourself or your nonprofit, then you're looking from an opportunity where you can speak. So those are the three key motivations in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So you're talking about really from the perspective of how do I speak, get on stage and be noticed. Uh, what are your sort of inside tactics for getting on stage, uh, either on a panel or uh, in a larger presence, especially if you're getting started? Well, um, I have to say, this is very interesting. I'm getting a ton of speaking invitations, but I'm not even trying now. Um, but when I was trying quite a bit, when I just started, it was actually very hard. Um, here's the simple things. Have a very bold, robust social profile. Be out there speaking, presenting, honing your message. Get a, Become a good presenter. And number four, you have to have good content to even get anywhere. Um, and stay there and grow from there. You know, you may make one or one-off breakthrough here and there to get in, but to stay in and to be serious about it, get great, great content. Number two, get good, get good decks. Invest a little bit of money on Upwork or one of these Elance platforms, and you know, 
get your outline and your PowerPoint, the basic one that you design, put into a good format so that it really communicates better. Give it a, give it a nice polish. Have an ex- excellent speaking bio and a, uh, a program description as to what you're going to speak about and what's the impact of that and connect that to people's mission. Um, and then the next thing you do once you've covered all of those bases, you need to do those before you start asking people is you start looking at where do you um, where do you have the natural strength and you start writing about it if you can blog go for it it's it's a great great evergreen medium for you to have a voice have an opinion and and use that as an opportunity to build thought leadership and what you are doing um you know audio uh, you know, podcasts and video casts and webinars are great ways to get visibility. And then to actually get into speaking circuits, um, what I say is uh, what I have found personally, especially I'll give you some large nonprofit conferences, sometimes it's actually very hard to go in directly as yourself, but it's easy if you can fit. This is my, my own personal hack, by the way. If you could figure out who are some people who are always speaking at the conference and you start partnering with them and you surprisingly bypass all of this um, jumping through the hoops. I mean, there's this big national conference that you know, I tried for three years submitting proposals after proposals and I would never get in and I'm like I'm doing so much work in this space writing speaking and I cannot get in but eventually it just ha- kind of clicked one time accidentally where I asked one of the people who always speak like hey if you're ever looking for a co-presenter let me know they let me in and I tested that next time and now I speak at that particular conference to the max number available each time because I know who to ask. <laughs> wow, that's a pretty good hack. Um, that's awesome. All right, so look, that sounds like a lot of work. What if I don't, I, I don't care about speaking, I'm there to learn. How do I, as an attendee, uh, maximize it from a networking perspective, right? Because I'm getting a couple of things from going in person. I'm getting knowledge and I'm getting network. So speak to a little bit of what your approach is for meeting people in the context of like what feels like just like a crowd of humanity sometimes. And you're like, oh, my God, how do I talk to this many people with this many name badges? I'll tell you what I look at and see if there's some transferable knowledge there. For, for me, I look at who do I want to network with and why. So I know the program inside out before I start the day. I know exactly who I want to speak with, who I want to impress, who I want to come in their radar. So I identify, I do a short list of, I take the program ahead of time. I make a short list of the interesting topics where I have something to gain, whether I want to establish my thought leadership in that particular room of people, or I want to talk to the sponsors uh, or a speaker who's also oftentimes a sponsor, and I want to connect with them. Once I've identified my shortlist, I look at, um, you know, looking at their program, looking at some of the programs that they have done in the past. If you have the time, pick three or four. Um, and then I I make a list of their Twitter handles, their, uh, you know, LinkedIn, see what work they've done. If they've done a similar presentation before, I'll quickly glance through that. And I try and find some material ahead of time. I always live tweet. If I'm in the room, it's a wastage of my time and resources 
if I'm not live tweeting and, and rising in that room of people. It shows I'm there, number one. It shows I am, am listening and I'm you know giving them props, whoever the speakers are, and kind of really creating a, a partnership digital that translates to when I do meet them in person at some point. Oh, yeah, I see you tweeted about me or you were, you know, it shows you gave them some digital love. Um, if you're not a strong writer or not a writer that does really well as far as um, um, live tweeting goes, you know, use Periscope, use a Facebook Live where you're you're actually. Um, you're live tweeting or live casting that content. So it helps in the room itself and you're like in as an active, active participant instead of being a you know backbench lurker. You're like upfront, center and making a big impression and impact and getting noticed. The other thing you're also doing is you're letting people in your plus one network and their plus one network who you are as well when you're taking an active interest, uh, you know, being in the right prime, right place, um, surrounded by the right people and connected with the right people. That's just kind of how I look at it. Um, and then I follow up. I, I take a lot of notes and I follow up and I keep an eye on if somebody's talking about a particular report, for example, at a webinar, I'm reviewing that report and picking up 10 or 12 tweets out of that report even before I join the webinar. So I'm really on top of you know writing well-designed looking tweets even though I did not design them in the moment. <laughs> My secret again. <laughs> you do a little prep work. You're like, all right, here's the uh, graphics. Yes, I do. Uh, love that. So it seems like between those two, and I've oversimplified the reasoning for going to a, a conference, you know, knowledge and network, you're much heavier focused here on the network aspect, it seems. You know, so you're, you're, you're going here with an eye toward I want to meet these types of people and I'm going to track them down. Uh, yours is, doesn't seem to be an approach where you're like, I'm going to meet as many people as possible as opposed to I'm going to meet the right people. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. Hands down. Yeah. One of the issues I've run into, and I, I kind of use, I'm just speaking for myself here, I kind of use social and especially my mobile phone as a sort of a way to retreat from actually talking to people. You know, I'm in a room, I'm getting, you know, maybe anxious, a little social anxiety, and I just, I find myself retreating into my phone more often than I probably should. So I guess my question to you is how do you strike that balance of actually being present, able to talk with people, follow the serendipity of a conference, and of course, like you said, being active in that online conversation, There, there's a balance there, and I just wonder how you strike it or think about it. Believe it or not, I'm an introvert. It doesn't look like it from the work I do. Um, so I actually draw a lot of energy from um, being more by myself. So I find retreating in the device to be another form of um, introversion, actually, because I'm able to sort of interact with people at my own pace and, um, and things like that. So, um, you know, make space and time for walks. Make space and time for your time if you need to do that. But when you are going in into the conference space, you know, pick top three or four, you know, conversations that you want to be part of. You see that as part of your job. You don't see as part of sort of engaging and floating meaninglessly. You'd say, hey, here's my goal. Here's what I want to accomplish in that. I want to live cast it. I want to live tweet it. Sometimes I live tweet and live cast at the same time with two different devices it's got a very goal-driven thing. And then I also use my mobile very carefully. You know, there are times when I will retreat and do my thing. 
but uh, I, I designed those times where I'm allowed to go out and, and take a time off and walk. But when I'm in the moment, I'm there for a job. The other thing I would say, because you mentioned mobile, is to have good mobile tools. For example, um, uh, a very simple tool uh, that I use or I just started using is, you know, it's a $2 app called CamCard. Uh, one of my challenges in the conferences was collecting this huge stack of cards and then planning to come back home and, uh, and really, um, uh, you know, doing something with it and following up. Now what I do is, first and foremost, I always take notes, but I, I take a photo of the cards as I go along. It adds those cards into my Gmail and my personal mail and my phone mail, like my phone contact books. So as soon as I get a card, I take a photo, put it in, and then I take notes. And then there's not every card that I plan to follow up with, but the ones that I plan to follow up with, I write down notes to at the back of it. And then my first opportunity the same day, I go ahead and follow up. But it allows me to enter all their contact information into my contact book at the same time. Um, this is it's a small thing to do, but it really prevents me from, you know, follow up, fail through kind of an issue. Um, and then I prioritize the top 10 cards that I'm going to do it. And I, I try and do it the same day. Uh, so if I have a need for introversion where I need to retreat, I often will retreat into doing this work. So at least you're being productive while you while you take some time. Yeah. Uh, how do you choose which sessions to go to if you're choosing between multiple ones? You know, I, I choose, uh, different people have different needs, right? Um, you know, I'm, my needs are, you know, I look at what am I here to do? One, am I here to find speakers for my events? So I think about who's a good speaker that I have not heard from before. Uh, if I know people and I've heard them a million times, I try not to go to them because I have nothing new to learn. Uh, I also, um, you know, it becomes an echo chamber of sorts. I want to introduce myself to new ideas. I also go to, uh, so that's one. If I'm going for knowledge, I go for things I don't know already. If I'm going for speaking and recruiting speakers, I see who I haven't worked with. If I'm going for uh, partnerships and sponsorships, I see, you know, if it's a high enough person, do I have any tangential connection? So I look at it and then I decide why am I going. But if you're going just for knowledge, which many nonprofit attendees are, I look at it and say, you know, what, what kind of content it is. Is this hands-on? Is it more conversational? Um, I try, I, I personally don't interact well with all PowerPoint. I prefer more, um, more interactive sessions. So I look for, are there ways to interact in there versus is this going to be a straight PowerPoint? I basically, uh, I zone out a little, uh, just my learning style. And it's, I think for everybody, because we're, our attention spans are getting smaller and smaller. So I look at those factors. Um, it looks like I analyze a whole lot, you know, actively, <laughs> constantly, but I do. Yeah. So getting more to the practical side of things, going to that many conferences, like how do you keep costs down? Like what are your hacks on like, I don't know, travel, hotel, and you know, the enormous cost it could really be, you know, you see a, a ticket price of like 200 or $250, but if you have to fly across the country and stay for multiple days, it can add up. 
It does add up. Uh, I'm, you know, vast majority of conferences I actually don't pay to go. Uh, if I'm a speaker, I ask them to cover at the very minimum my cost. When I was starting out in the sector, I would always offer to volunteer and get them to cover the cost through volunteering. Like, hey, I'd be very happy to do registration or something else. Uh, as I progress a little in my career, I offer to do live live casting or live social media tweeting. Um, that's gotten me in for free many times. Don't be afraid to volunteer either ahead of time or during the time, number one. If you're a speaker, you know, honor the contribution that you make and the value that you bring to a conference. Ask to be covered. So, you know, like this is important to me that I'm coming and making time. Um, I'd like for you to, you know, make my participation possible. When it comes to travel, you know, if you use miles, if you can, book far, as far in advance as you can, uh, you know, take a layover or two, it lo lowers your airfare costs. Use low-price carriers like JetBlue, Southwest, they're great. Um, then the, the staying part, I will share this, I save a lot of money on this. I do see a great deal of value in staying at the conference hotel. But what I find even better, which I did, uh, I don't know if George was able to make it, but I did it in NT at NTC last year. I found a beautiful condo right across from NTC conference, which is a nonprofit technology conference. Um, and that it slept comfortably, like three bedrooms or four bedrooms, four people. Um, our cost was you know, far cheaper than the conference hotel per night. But we also, because it was a condo and had a kitchen and stuff, we were able to control our cost of food. And we hosted a social every single night. And we got an amazing group of people together. We connected. Uh, we, we built far stronger community than we, any of us had ever done that. And we paid less per night than we had. So I would say look at, you know, if you can put a collaborative together of three or four people and go and get some, you know, just beer and uh, wine and some appetizers. It's cheap to, like, you know, popcorn or whatever. Uh, little things and kind of get people. Be a connector. Um, huge return on investment in addition to lower costs. And finally, final tip would be I use Airbnb um, extensively. I, I literally use Airbnb and Miles very extensively to, to lower my own cost of participation everywhere I go. And then don't be afraid to ping friends and say, hey, do you want to split a room or do you want to, you know, um, if you know somebody that lives in town, can I crash on your couch? That's the old school way. <laughs> <laughs> A little couch surfing to keep it down. Uh, that's awesome. These are really great tips. I was actually just taking notes on some. I was like, oh my gosh, how have I never done that? Um, fantastic, Ritu. As we move to a close, I got to ask, what is uh, one piece of advice you would give uh, our audience uh, in general with regard to conferences uh, and attending them that maybe we haven't covered? Use them as a great opportunity to meet people, build relationships, follow up, and follow through. I think it's a, it's a great place to meet people. Not a whole lot of learning, in my opinion, that takes place, but a whole lot of connecting can take place at conferences. So, you know, see what each medium is best for and use it for its strength. Yeah, I love that. And that prioritization of networking and just being honest going in. So thank you so much for your time. As a, a final question here, Ritu, uh, how do people find you? How do people help you? Oh, good. <laughs> well, I, I am at uh, Ritu Sharma One, uh, my full name with number one at Twitter, if you'd like to reach me on Twitter. My email is my name, Ritu, R-I-T-U, at SM4NP. SM number four, N is in Nancy, P is in Paul.org. If you'd like to reach out for email, 
for help. Uh, you know, we're incubating a new program. We're taking a month or two break from our own programs right now to really rethink and restructure who we are and where we're going. So um, just stay tuned on our social channels and we'll keep you posted as to where we're going and you know how you can partner with us and collaborate and, and being a part of that. Great. And can you just give us the website where people can find you? www.s as in Sam, M as in Mary, number four, N as in Nancy, P as in Paul.org, sm4np.org. Thank you so much. And I'm sure now that people know you, they will see you at the many conferences that they go to. Thank you for inviting and thank you for the opportunity to have another wonderful conversation with you, George. as I see that our work focuses on the digital, I mean, literally at Whole Whale, like we're all digital all the time. And this podcast is focused on stories of data and tech in a nonprofit world. I think there's absolutely a need for that on the ground, in-person meeting and networking. And now more than ever, actually, where we tend to distance ourselves with superficial conversations and connections that are fostered by our our communications platforms. And so really take to heart some of those ideas I think that Riju has. Plan for a conference. Get out there. You know, there's ways of doing it uh, on a budget, affordably. And and again, it's been tremendous value uh, to me personally in my own career. Uh, I'm also speaking to you uh, right now, actually, on March 17th. And we at Whole Whale are running our very first on-the-ground training and I have to admit I'm terrified. Uh, I don't know how Ritu does it. Putting together a conference is terrifying. Uh, I'm just doing a three-hour training today. Uh, we have 280 people signed up in the New York area. I'm assuming right now a conversion rate of probably about 45 to 50% of the those folks showing up. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, but, you know, kudos, hats off to anyone running on-the-ground events uh, because they're difficult, but I think the, the potential upside of connecting people on the ground in meaningful ways and learning engagements uh, is really priceless, uh, what can come out of it. We'll see how I feel about it after our conference. Again, the resources that you can find for this episode, uh, it's number 48, and so you can find that on our site, wholewhale.com slash podcasts, and we'll also have a link to that awesome list of 65-plus nonprofit conferences that you can go and track down and choose one that... Uh, that may fit for you. This has been Using the Whole Whale. For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com slash podcast and consider following us on Twitter at Whole Whale. And thanks for joining us. Outro music and general music during the show coming from the one, the only... Greg Thomas. I actually don't know any other Greg Thomases, so he's literally the only Greg Thomas I know. And also kudos to him because recently he just, uh, one of his songs just got picked up by uh, Starbucks for advertising. So well done, Greg. Keep it up. We'll be able to say uh, we gave you your start on the Whole Whale podcast, even though that's not even remotely true. But I'm claiming it because I just said it now. <laughs>